Hey, welcome back to The Urban Monk. Dr. Pedram Shojai here talking about popular issues and uh, another in the long line of fucking with everything series. Uh, today we're going to fuck with empathy <laughs> because we use the word uh, in a way where, you know, empathy is always good and that we should all be empathic. We should always uh, have empathy for everyone and everything in every situation. And my guest today, Paul Bloom, professor of psychiatry, psychology over at psychology at Yale, uh, smart guy guy has a book out today called Against Empathy, which to me is awesome because it's a provocative title and it's going to open up some very nice dialogue. And so, <laughs> first of all, welcome, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. We, um, we thought about the title, Fucking With Empathy, but we just decided against it for some reason. Yeah, you, you so. know, it's one of those things. But now see, Mark Manson has a book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and so... All bets are off. Now you could now you could say yeah, that word. You could get away with it. <laughs> totally. You could you could get you could get away with anything nowadays. So uh, why like so you've obviously been studying this. This is this is coming from a position mm -hmm. of, of you know an educated opinion. What's up with empathy? What why is it why is it wrong? What are we messing up here? So the first thing you gotta realize is people use the word empathy in different ways. So some people use the word empathy just to mean being a nice person, being good, being kind, being moral. I'm not against that. And other people use the term empathy as understanding other people's heads. And I'm not against that either, but I think that your ability to understand the minds of other people is neither moral or immoral. So a great person is really good at figuring out what other people want. A psychopath and a torturer and a, a, a con man is also good. The sort of empathy I'm interested in is feeling other people's pain, feeling what they feel, feeling their pleasure, feeling their pain. And the argument I make is that's a great source of pleasure it's a great source of literature and movies and TV shows, but it makes us moral idiots. It focuses us on one person over 100. It's biased. It's racist. It's short-sighted. It's irrational. And we do a lot better in real-world situations when we don't allow ourselves to be empathic to others. Interesting. Okay, so it's short-sighted. It's racist. It's biased. Um, because we are getting a little too myopic on a, a single person's kind of characteristic and flaws, like let, let's tease that out a little bit more. Yeah, so that's actually a good way to get to it. So the people who like empathy say it's like a spotlight. It zooms you in on a single person, and it's true. That's one of its powers. But, um, but what it also does is because it zooms you in on an individual person, it's enumerate. It focuses you on uh, one person over 100, and there's psychological data saying that when you feel empathic, you will really value the one over 100. And it also, like a spotlight, it, it, it lights up what you direct it at. So I'm a white guy. I'm from a certain country. I'm from a certain background. It's very natural for me to empathize with people who look like me, people I know, people who are friendly. Some black kid in Africa, somebody who I'm afraid of, it's a lot harder to empathize. To the extent that I'm a good person and I'm, I do fair and moral decision making is because I shut down my empathy and I say, forget about how good I am at feeling other people's pain. What's the principle here? What will do the most good? What will cause uh, the least suffering? Hmm. So yeah, so the zooming in, you're right. The, the, the spotlight nature of it is where many of its problems come from. Interesting. And it's being exploited everywhere, right? And so I, I see this. Uh, I saw this the other day on the news. They were talking about um, how in Syria, ISIS had, you know, attacked these Christian villages, right? <laughs> and it was like, yeah. well, ISIS has been killing everyone indiscriminately for a long time, but you can relate to the Christian villages. So now all of a sudden, you know, people are donating and, and getting all pissed off about this. And that's, you know, just one microcosmic example of 
empathy kind of towards uh, maybe a Christian audience. And so where else is it exploited? There's, count, there's countless examples. I mean, since you brought it up, when some people think about empathy, they think about, you know, puppies and charities and helping people. I think of war and genocide. I mean, whenever somebody wants you to strike out in another group, go to war, wipe them out, expel them from the country, what they'll do is, they'll do a lot of things, but they'll exploit your empathy. So, um, you know, I, I think Donald Trump provides a clear example of this. Whatever your politics about it, it's pretty clear that he wanted to direct a lot of hostility towards undocumented immigrants. And the way he did so in his speeches, and this is based on Ann Coulter's book, Adios America, was he made you really feel for the, for the, for the victims of these immigrants, people who are raped or assaulted, families devastated by murder, or just people who lose their jobs. Empathy can be weaponized. It could be used to focus you on a group, and then your empathy for members of that group directs outrage and anger towards another group. So it, it leads not only to irrational decisions, but often, I think, to cruel ones. That's really interesting. So, I mean, the kind of empathy a guy like Jesus would have been talking about um, is certainly not this kind of empathy that's, that's basically voting with your empathy for one group and then basically polarizing and being angry and upset and uh, against the opposite group. And that's what you're yeah, suggesting is happening. Yeah, so, so I think a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking, well, you want to be a good person, you need some sort of motivation, some sort of drive, whether you attribute it to Jesus or Martin Luther King or whoever, there's something pushing these people to make the world a better place. But I think that we need to carefully distinguish empathy, which is very narrow and focused and biased, from compassion or kindness or love, which could be a lot broader. And you know, my book goes over a lot of the, the sort of science behind this. So when you feel empathy for somebody, different parts of your brain are active than if you feel concern or, 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 or love for them. Empathy exhausts you while compassion invigorates you. Hmm. There are these studies where they train people to be either empathic or compassionate and finds this has a huge difference. If you want to make people not only be more likely to help, but be more effective at it, um, compassion is far better than empathy. I have a, a, a question here, and this isn't something that, you know, and maybe it's because I'm like a hippie spiritual healer doctor guy, but um, empathy and compassion. I've always kind of lumped those two together, and semantically right now, you're, you're talking night and day. So what are, what are the actual definitions of these so that we can kind of understand where we, where we stand? Because I, I think a lot of people throw the mushy words together and don't see a difference. Yeah, and you know, people use words in all sorts of ways, and I'm not a language police. I don't, I don't care what you call these things. Mm. As long as you recognize there's just two separate ways of putting, of, of, of motivating good behavior. I want to call one of them empathy, the other one compassion, but you know, your mileage may vary, it doesn't matter. The empathy one is you're in pain and I feel your pain. I really, I get upset by it. Maybe you're anxious, I feel your anxiety. Uh, uh, you know, you're humiliated, you're lost and I feel it. And that might motivate me to help you. That's empathy. The other one is you're in pain, you're, you're, you're sad, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're in physical pain and I care about you. I'm because I, mean, I care about everybody. I'm a good person. I don't want you to suffer. Um, you know, the, 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 the Buddhist monks use, um, use entirely different language for this. They call it the first one. They don't call it empathy. They call it uh, sentimental compassion. And they say it sucks. It'll get you to help for a little bit and it will exhaust you and burn you out. Mm -hmm. 
what I've been calling compassion, they call great compassion. And they say, this is helping that not only do I help you, but I don't feel your pain. I feel invigorated. I'm a better helper and I don't get burnt out. And think about it, you know, think about being a parent. Think about being a parent. You got, you got a kid, your kid is freaking out for some reason. Got homework, he didn't do his homework. He has a problem with, with a girl, all sorts of things. What kind of parent do you want to be? Well, you love your kid. Do you want to freak out with your kid? Do you want to like, also panic, also get, get, get upset and disoriented? No, you want to be loving and calm and cool. Imagine you have a friend who's depressed. You want to get depressed with him? Well, that's not going to help him. Now you got two problems. What you want is to sort of cheer him up and listen and understand. And so what these examples show is there's two ways of responding. And one way is sort of echoing somebody's feelings. That's empathy. And it's tempting. It's a powerful urge. But the better way is actually responding with kindness and care. And that could sometimes mean being the opposite of how this person feels. You know, I, I think of my friends in the .org realm, um, and one of the things that they're constantly complaining about is clicktivism, uh, and how you know there's just so little uh, response on all these things where they're just bleeding their hearts out, talking. You know, Here's a picture of a polar bear and this that, and it's all really it, you know for, within this context, really kind of drumming on that em empathy drum. And, you know, it's just, it's, it is exhausting. I know so many people that just have a hard time opening those emails now because it's just like, oh, damn, here we go again. Here's some more bad news. The world is, the world is crashing. And, you know, I've, I've just got a headache today. I'm over it. It's yeah. tough. I mean, I, I wrote a piece discussing some of this and I got a letter from a doctor, actually, sorry, from a first responder in 9-11. I, I excerpted in my book for her permission. And she says she went to the site uh, was was digging up bodies and speaking to families and she couldn't she couldn't do it. it It killed her. It felt terrible and she had to stop while her husband Was just as active and it didn't bother him at all and Nobody's to blame here. You know some people are empathic I'm in some way my book is an attempt at self-help because I'm more empathic than I want to be But I notice it trips me up. Mm. I don't think I would be good doing something like helping burn victims or people who are deeply depressed because if you feel they're suffering it, it, it exhausts you hmm. and in fact one response to all of these empathic appeals when we're talking about you know first responders and everything but also charities and the news is withdrawal burn i don't want to see that shit anymore mm -hmm. you know i don't want to i don't want to get upset i don't want it to, it, it to drag me down rather um and i think an entirely better approach is Ask yourself, how do you make it a better world? What do you want to do with your life? What's the right thing to do? And, and don't get swayed by your feelings. Don't listen to your heart. You know, use compassion, but guide it with reason and rationality. And when we do this, um, I think the world just becomes a much better place. Okay, so don't lead with your heart because the empathy is driving you into an emotional state that is basically blocking out any rational thinking. And so you go into a doctor, you don't want them to feel your pain, you want them to look at this objectively. This is, this is what we're yes. suggesting. Absolutely. You want them, and that's an example which I, I discussed, if I'm really anxious, I don't want to talk to a doctor and have him or her be really anxious. That's of no help to me at all. Mm -hmm. Now. I don't want a cold-blooded, cruel doctor either who doesn't care about me. I want somebody who wants to solve the problem or whatever's bothering me, will think rationally and clearly, and will be kind. 
and respectful and supportive. All of those good things are good things and nobody would argue against them. But to think that a good doctor or a good therapist shares the feelings of the people they work with is to totally misunderstand what medicine or therapy is. Hmm. This sort of distance isn't just, is, is a necessary part of being effective at anything. And you know, doctors, uh, uh, therapists, but also police officers, firefighters, teachers, parents, you need to separate another person's concerns from your own so you could care for them, so you can make the world better. You know, it's interesting as I come from um, the world of doctordom where so many of our colleagues are just burnt out because there's mm -hmm. this kind of innate sense that, you know, the world is sliding faster than, than one can fix it and that, you know, there's this guilt about not being able to be empathic enough and so people just show up and just take bullets all day with their people and it's exhausting. I mean, I don't know very many doctors that recommend medicine to their children anymore. It's just, it's so exhausting being able, being on that front line and, and having a thankless job and going on those emotional roller coasters. Yeah, and, and to be successful at it, you first you have to be a, a certain sort of person. Um, a friend of mine who's a pediatric oncologist talks about people who drop out of medical school. Now they drop out of the internship program because they, they can't even take it from day one. But then in addition to whatever gifts you have, you have to sort of establish a sort of practice as you do your work. There's a great writer, Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon, he writes for New Yorker, and he describes what it's like to be a surgeon. And a surgeon, when you look at a body, you don't see it like a body like, like you or I would see a body with disgust or sexuality or, or being grossed out. A surgeon sees the body as a problem to be solved hmm. and, dis and has distance from it. And that sounds really cold, and you wouldn't want to see the loved ones as problems to be solved, but that distance is necessary to do something like surgery or something like therapy or something like, um, like any sort of aspect of criminal justice. Speaking of which, you, you hear a lot that, you know, these kids in juvenile hall, these, these, you know, kind of corrections facilities, you know, these people are, you know, they lack empathy and so therefore they are violent criminals and we have to teach them these empathic things. And so I hear this in the discourse a lot. Are you suggesting that this is not the case and that what they're, they're needing to learn is compassion or self-love? I mean, what do they need to, what do they need? Um, I could answer that. One of the great urban legends of, uh, of bad people is that psychopaths or criminals are low empathy and that people with low empathy are more aggressive and more violent. Now it turns out that psychopaths are low empathy, but it also turns out that their scores on an empathy test have no relationship to how bad they are. It also turns out that for you and me, if we tested us on empathy scales, it has no predictive power on what kind of people we are. Hmm. But I can answer your question. Here's what does have predictive power. The first is super obvious, a history of violence. If I want to know whether, you know, you're going to beat the crap out of me and take my money, the first thing I want to know is, have you done this kind of thing before? Mm -hmm. The second is more interesting. It's a lack of self-control. The great predictor of violence by both psychopaths but also by normal people is a lack of self-control. And what this suggests is that we typically you know, know the right thing to do. We want to do the right thing, but sometimes we get mad. We get we all other emotions creep in. And if your your head is on right and you have a lot of control, you can you can hold back. But some people can't. They're impulsive. They're they're reflexive. 
they, um, they're sensation seeking, and they can't hold back. Mm-hmm. And those are the people who cause a lot of problems in the world. It's funny, I um, took my kids and, and a few of our staff down to Disneyland yesterday, and I was standing in line uh, with my, my two-year-old, uh, and there's this uh, two, two girls and a kid in front of us, and the kid was, I don't know, not even three years old, and the entire interaction was, and they were, they were Latina, and they were very, very friendly people, but all of their interaction was play fighting, and like, oh, she hit her, and oh, she hit her, and I'm watching this, and I'd like turn my kid away, it's just like, wow, this kind of modeling is probably not the best for this three-year-old, and, and the entire uh, personality of this three-year-old was, was this kind of scrappy puppy that was starting to come up, and I'm just looking down the barrel of that, saying, how do you not be more aggressive if that's your means of communicating with the adults in your life, and so, you're seeing this down the line, right? Yeah, I don't know, but, but I, I think there are real cultural differences. There are cultural differences across countries, but even within the United States, how people are raised. Yep. So some people are raised extremely affectionate with their kids and never any fighting, no guns in the house, no violent video games. And, um, and some of them are, like as you're describing, a lot more play fighting, bullying, a lot of teasing, a lot of teasing and joking around. Um, and. I'm actually not sure, absent other things, whether that sort of teasing and play fighting and so on has any bad effects. I mean, one of right. the most interesting things about America over the last 30 years, and we're, we're getting a little bit of a blip in the opposite direction, has been a drop in violent crime. There has For been. For whatever reason, there's been a huge drop in violent crime since like the, the mid 80s. Hmm. Um, uh, your odds in the big cities and small towns, it is, nobody's exactly sure why, but we are far safer than we've ever been living as American citizens from murder, rape, robbery, and so on. That's incredible. And, um, and, and, so and again, we don't, know, we don't know why, but are there like some, some theories that are out there leading the pack? There's some theories. There's theories that it has to do with changes in, in, in demographics. It has to do with, um, with a sort of rights revolution. So, so corresponding with this drop of violence, um, we're expanding human rights to people, to, to sexual minorities, for racial minorities, where, you know, there's different cultures. In, in, in my high school where I was raised, bullying, fights, they were just standard. But my kids, you know, go to a school, and there are all sorts of schools in my community, and they're very worried about this kind of thing. And there's a culture where, you know, you, have a, you can have a gay kid in the school or a trans kid, and a kid is treated with, with respect and care. There were bullying's discouraged. They're not different kinds of people. They have the same brains, the same genes, but the culture is different. Hmm. And I'll tell you that one thing that this drop in violence tells us, in the last 20, 30 years, video games and other expressions becoming far more violent. And some people say, oh my God, this is gonna corrode our empathy and make us worse. Well, it doesn't seem to. Hmm. And, and if anything, well, you're saying it's happened since the 80s, so are those kids old enough to be buying assault rifles yet? And, and so they're, they're already getting to be of age? Well, the kids, the kids right now are a lot less. So uh, a 19-year-old in mid-80s would be a lot more likely to, to shoot you than one around now. Interesting. Um, and it's true, actually, you age out of violence. So by the time you're my age, you know, when, once you hit 50, you know, they should just release all 50-year-olds from prison because, because the violence is committed in the world is committed by young men. Interesting. That's the danger period. Interesting. Interesting. So, 
where is it valuable? I mean, is empathy just out, out in the trash or is there some place where we should probably still look at it? Yeah, I think empathy is super valuable in some ways. So, um, so empathy is a tremendous source of pleasure. You know, you, you have a two-year-old. One of the great pleasures of having kids is you could experience things that you've long experienced for the first time all over again. You know, fireworks and a Hitchcock movie and ice cream. You want your kid experience them and you feel that. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have to outline how, how sex is enhanced by, by empathy, some sports. But for me, most of all, the pleasures of fiction. The pleasures, of, you know, I watch a lot of TV. I watch, you know, The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Westworld and everything. I watch these shows. And so much of the pleasure is putting yourself in the shoes of another person for a minute being another person. And this is one of the great pleasures of literature as well, of course. You know, reading Lolita or Dickens or something like that in, in the, the act of empathic engagement. So, you know, the title of my book is Against Empathy, but I'm only against empathy in the moral realm. I'm not against empathy as a source of pleasure and delight. Interesting. And so how do we parse those apart? Like when, when we're having a conversation about who we are as a culture, how do you do that? Um, people work towards a culture where appealing to racism is, uh, is a bad thing. Where if there's a politician who says, you know, vote for me, I'm the white guy. You know, that's too much. Yes, people do dog whistles and people say, but for the most part, Overt appeals to racism is just out. It's just you know not on the table, um, which is why they have to be hidden. I'd like to get to the point where some empathic appeals are treated the same way. So that's at sort of the policy level, where where if you want to bomb Syria, which is going to kill a lot of people, make a case for it. Say this is why it's going to who's going to help. These are none of people are going to die. This is what's going to happen. But don't show me a picture. Don't hold up a photograph and say, this is why we gotta go to war. But isn't that some sort of geopolitical, I mean, so okay, and I don't know the deal in Syria, but you know, isn't it there's a balance of power and, this, you know, and the Russians are doing this and we have an oil pipeline here and, you know, and, and our business interests, I mean, that, that's usually why we go to war is, is for some sort of geopolitical strategic gain. But the American people don't give a damn about that, right? They just, you know, most people just wanna go to work and come home and see their kids, so then you gotta show the pictures to get it, so yep. how do you stop that? I think, I think the American people should get to a point where they say, someone holds up a picture or shows a YouTube video, and American people say, that's a crap reason to go to war. Hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know what you are, and, and everything else, I don't know what your thoughts are on healthcare, I don't know what my thoughts are on healthcare, but telling me a sad story of some guy, this happened, that happened, that's not an argument. There's always gonna be sad stories. Mm -hmm. Um, we have, as individuals, we choose what to give to charity, where to help. I think we should go and try to figure out um, what makes the most difference. And fortunately, there is a cultural change. There's websites like GiveWell.org where they rank the charities based on the effects, and that's just a much better way of doing things than who has the cutest picture. Yep. So I think in I think there's a general thing where we should have a cultural shift more towards reason and rationality, less empathy. On a more personal level, I think there are certain practices like meditative practices, which I'm trying my best on, that can make us more compassionate people without the distraction of empathy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know that those things do work. 
uh, you know, unfortunately, they take work, and most people are lazy, and yeah. so you know, <laughs> it's 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 hard to get people to actually do the practices that that generate that compassion. But um, oh, you know, it's yeah, I could I could speak from experience. I, I find you know lorazepam and bourbon a lot better than ten minutes of meditation. So, but meditation is probably better for me. Sure. Well, and that that's a mark of our culture, right? It's it's much easier yes. to do that, right? And yes. so that's also part of where I think personally, because I do have lots of opinions about healthcare, uh, is healthcare has gotten into a trouble too is you know the, the the pharmaceuticals have trained us to ask for the shortcut the quick pill mm -hmm. and so the physician you know being stuck in that kind of empathic Bermuda's triangle if you will basically listens for yep. a minute and is just like all right here <laughs> next yep. you know move off like I can't I can't I can't stay here with you it's you know a, I don't have time and yep. B it hurts yeah I, I think there are practices we could pursue both as a culture and as individuals that will make us better people that will make us more contemplative, more rational, kinder, mm -hmm. but pull us away from this sort of endless buzz of empathic connection and concern. Save that for, for, for your pleasure, save that for the novels and TV shows, it's great, but it's a lousy way to run a country and a lousy way to run a life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's a great way to win, to run a country if you're, if you're the guy that just won, right? And, and so that's also part yes. of it. <laughs> Yes, it is. I, I am not doubting for a second that these empathic fields are very powerful. Right. And, and, and it takes a politician with some skill and some willpower and respect for people to say, I want to try to convince you of something. Let me lay out the arguments. Right. As opposed to dragging somebody out and say, look, look at this poor person. They will die unless you do such and so. Right. But if that's who you are competing against... It almost seems like a race to the bottom, which is a challenge we're seeing now in our political sphere. Is you know you're trying to have a rational conversation, and some guys you know throwing crazy stuff you know on, on all sides, right? It's it, it's yeah. it brings it down, right? You know, I've done I've done so much in my career defending human rationality and human reason, and so this is a rough time for a guy like me. People it's, are not are not at their reasonable best, but right. you know I'm an optimist. I think that that we carry within our heads. Uh, prejudices and biases and gut feelings and a race to the bottom will capture those but at the same time we are capable of rationality and reason and fairness and grace and I think we have those capacities too and and sometimes you know sometimes they show up and and, and they can make a difference so going back to say Aristotle and all those cool guys how much of this is a pendulum swing um, that you're seeing I mean is this a historical pendulum that's like okay so we've gone away from rationality and we're going more towards kind of you know, heated empathy. Yeah, I think I think so. It, it's um, you know, there was a time where they talked about the age of reason, and they proved the time of enlightenment and rationalism. And then for the last fifty years, both in the sort of general public and also in my field of psychology, there's been a move to saying, no, we're creatures of feelings, of of emotions, of the heart, and and a dis and sort of a disparagement of reason. And I I see my book as a pushback. I'm happy to call it a pendulum shift, where I'm thinking that we forgot about the virtues of reason and rationality. Mm -hmm. We forgot about the fact that that everything great in our world morally, from you know, the abolition of slavery, the establishment of of, of of connections between groups that would have never spoken, are to a large extent the product of reason. And uh, and that many of the things in our life that are really awful, and including a lot of things in 2016, are the product of us listening to our hearts. It's interesting that it's still so binary. 
you know, I'm, I'm a Taoist by training, right? I'm an abbot in a Taoist lineage. It's all about balance of these things. And even mm -hmm. like, you know, even in intellectual circles, it's like, you know, rationalism. No, 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 we're back over here. And, and it's just like, it's almost like as a society, we cannot metabolize the entirety of all of it. Like, what if it were both? What if that, that kind of global view must be? So it, it's a very difficult conversation to have because everyone wants to know what your position is on something. And it's yeah. within a binary framework. Yeah, I mean, and, and the question of how to be a good person isn't going to admit of a simple answer. There has to be, I would argue, a lot of reason and rationality. So make, that's how you make the good choices, the choices that make the world better, the choices that make your child better, and they aren't short term. But you also need some sort of emotional kick in the pants. Hmm. And then it gets complicated. I think that empathy is actually, because of its spotlight nature, an unreliable guide, while compassion is much better. But I agree that to, to function as a good person, you have to sort of manifest this duality between the sort of more cognitive, rational processes and certain emotional, motivational processes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and that's a, that's a degree of sophistication that is is a bit of more of a challenge. I mean, so you know, we're talking about self cultivation. We're talking about you know you know learning about your impulsive behaviors and having some sort of rational checks and balances. And so you know that that requires us to step in a bit more. Yeah, right, and, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of roots to it. There's a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, I have my problems with a lot of religious ideas and religious beliefs, but religious practices for the most part are often designed to kind of elegantly solve the problem that you're raising, to sort of put together these capacities of reason and sentiment and make you a good person. Um, you know, a lot of Christian practice, Jewish practice, Buddhist practice, Islamic practice are all developed in that in that way. And then, you know, you also get the great philosophers, like, you know, mentioned Aristotle, my favorite is Adam Smith. I think, uh, I think, you know, I like people to buy my book, but, it, but, it, but what I'd really like is them to put my book aside and get Adam Smith's book from the 1700s, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, <laughs> which is this brilliant work about exactly what you're talking about, the interplay between the head and the heart. You know, what's uh, hilarious is, um, so we're making a movie right now about the conscious capital uh, movement and just about move, moving your money to where your sentiment is to manifest the world uh -huh. that you want to see and all that. And I can't tell you how many of these captains of, of capitalism have referenced Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments and been like, you know, this yeah. is the book. Everyone, everyone's talking about yeah. the invisible hand. Everyone's talking about Adam Smith being, you know, Michael Douglas from Wall Street. Go back and read his work, right? And, and it's really about that, that very thing. You're totally right. Everybody, everybody hears of the wealth of nations, founder of economics, and assumes that Smith believes that we are inherently selfish. Then you read a theory of moral sentiments, and at the very first, like the first paragraph, he says that, that the fact we care for other people cannot be denied. And this is the fundamentals from which our, our social lives are built from. And then Adam Smith later on, Darwin comes in and provides an evolutionary backing for how we could be such creatures. You throw in some social psychology, some game theory, some Buddhist theology, and it gets really interesting. It really does. It really does. And so where's this conversation being had? Like, I would love to keep putting a megaphone on that sector. I'm sure you have colleagues over at Yale and there's people all over yeah. the country that are really starting to, to 
get this more cohesive argument out there and putting it in front of people. I'd love any guidance there for our listeners and viewers to, to you know, go, obviously go read Against Empathy, go read Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments and, and yeah. go after, you know, wisdom and knowledge. Who else, who else should they be reading on this? Oh, there's so many smart people. Um, oh, I'll just pull a few names. Steve Pinker is one of the smartest scholars around. His book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, describes the decline of violence, and it's just a beautiful book. Uh, Larissa McFarquhar wrote a book called Strangers Drowning, and she's somebody you should talk with because she talks about extraordinary altruists, people who, um, who, who give their kidneys to strangers, who give all their money away, who devote their whole lives to helping other people. And I discuss this in my book, and it, it's complicated. So I'm not, they're not all cold-blooded rationalists. Some people are very religious. Some people are people of, of, uh, of, of scholars. But so, so she has this fascinating exploration. There's a Robert Wright, who I think has thought deeply about uh, both evolution and, and how issues like the free market connects with evolution to solve some problems and generate other things. The role of Buddhism and the relation between Buddhism and evolution. Um, Peter Singer is one of my favorite philosophers who has, has this very radical view on, uh, on, on how we should live our moral lives, but I think it really challenges our presupposition. Singer believes that people like, like you and me, with your fancy clothes and my nice sweater, are basically doing something horribly wrong. While people are dying of starvation, we have all of these luxuries. So there's this radical idea that as good people, we should give up so much more than we do. Mm. So people, people like Pinker, McFarquhar, Wright, Singer, I can give you a dozen other names. There's so many smart people around delving into these issues. And so these are exciting times. They are. They are. And, and so then the, the kind of contentious you know, counterpoint to that is most Americans are watching what the Kardashians are doing or you know, Monday Night Football. And so these conversations aren't really front and center. And you know, that, that is maybe a mark of you know, why you know, things aren't quite right yet. And so it's hard to get these, these kind of richer intellectual arguments in front of you know, as many people as we could. And that's, that's one of the challenges with media. Because I'll tell you, it's the same damn thing. Uh, I, I, you know, I've kind of complained about this on the show a few times. It's like, you know, you want to be in the health space? You want to have a rational argument or just tell someone that you have some sort of miracle herb out of the Amazon that cures them of everything? Um, it's just clickbaity and empathy-driven uh, industry that's all about just, you know, kind of pushing on people's fears and getting them to act in a way that happens to make you rich. It's, it's really shitty. It, 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 it is shitty in that way. It, it's, it's, a, it's a problem of, you know, there's nutritious food over here, but there's some amazing M&Ms over here. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, this deep work by Adam Smith over here, but there's my Twitter account over here. Mm-hmm. And the modern world is, is ingeniously designed to capture our attention, our focus, our, 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 our tastes um, with things that, that provide immense immediate uh, feedback. I think there's, I'm a big fan of Twitter. I think there's so much good going on on Twitter and it gives us so much access. But, but I am not the only person I know who's somewhat addicted to the immediate buzz of the retweet or the Facebook like. And so, so many people now, kids especially, can spend their whole life staring at their phone, you know, liking and tapping on these things and getting the, and getting the buzz. And to step back and do the sort of work you're doing or read the sort of books I'm talking about requires a lot of self-control. It does. It's by no means easy. The world does not make it easy for us. Well, there's a, the early Gnostics had a very interesting expose of kind of early Christianity and when it came. And they, they, they had mentioned these 
trans-dimensional beings, beings called the Archons. And it was a big part of their, their entire kind of philosophy and their, their gestalt. And it was, um, these are trans-dimensional beings that, that consume human psyche consciousness. And so there's a battle for the consciousness, the mind share of humanity, because where your mind goes is where your energy goes, and that's where you're empowering. And so, you know, your splintered consciousness um, isn't focused on where, you, you know, your growth and the positivity is, then where is it, right? And most of us are parked up in someone else's reality, um, watching some news and being just away. And that's, that's dangerous, right? That's dangerous in a world that needs us. And it's dangerous, in, you know, as a parent, I know every time, like, you know, if, if I get caught up checking some Facebook feed or some crap on my phone, my kid looks at me and goes, obviously that thing's more important than me, so now I want that. And so they're asking me yep. for the phone, and you're like, oh, damn. This is, this is now already a trans-generational trans, um, virus that's infecting a two-year-old. I better stop. No, it, it, it's a nice metaphor. These things are sucking away at our attention. And, you know, they, 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 they have value. When used properly, social media and the like have tremendous powers. You can learn a lot about the world. We're on but social media right now. Right now, we're live on Facebook. Exactly. So we can't, you know, you know it, it is what it is. Right, don't, don't turn away from this. <laughs> you know, read the book, but not now. But right, totally. I, I don't think, I mean, this is gonna be a strong claim, but I don't really think you could, you could live a good, satisfying life without at least trying to read books. And, you know, um, and tweets and Facebooks and videos and TED Talks are so much more fun. But, but maybe with just a few famous exceptions, every, except, every, every person in the world of great accomplishment reads a lot. Yeah. You know, one of my dear friends mentioned this to me a while back, and I just, it's always sat with me, is he's an avid reader. And I said, why? He's like, because it's leverage. Someone takes their entire life experience and puts it into 300 words for you, and you have now gotten... 30, 40 years of human life lived in, you know, a few hours of, of reading, it's leverage. It allows me to be a better person. And it really sat with me. It's something that I, I you know, the, the most successful people, the most compassionate people I know happen to be avid readers. I agree. And, and you know, we're talking about nonfiction, the work of Smith and so on. I feel the same way about novels. Like, in reality, I'm going to live just about one life. Mm. But... I could also live the life of a black kid growing up in Chicago or a geisha or or um, or a European pedophile or whatever from from exploring great works of fiction. And that, too, is an extraordinary possibility to live these multiple lives. Um, and so so there's a lot of opportunity. And, and so and to your point, that is where empathy might be better used is in living multiple lives through the experience of others, but not bringing it into kind of the political sphere and where it crowds out rationality. Absolutely. I think, you know, another ingredient of it is I think we're, we're nowhere near as good as we think we are at getting into other people's heads. I think we tend to overstate that. I tend to really, there's a lot of scientific studies looking at this, but I, I think I know what it's like to be you, and often I'm just dead wrong. Mm -hmm. So, but I think that, but I agree, the act of trying is so satisfying and so important and makes us human, gives us pleasure, I think makes us better people. So, so keep empathy away from public policy, from raising your kids, from morality, but as pleasure, it's fantastic. Interesting. There's got to be a, like a training, and I and I invite my listeners to read your book, uh, and then just just to have a filter. 
to, to understand where you find that empathy is being exploited in the mm -hmm. media coming your way. And I'm assuming that's something that you're, you're, training, you're, you're t talking to your students at least in Yale about. Absolutely. So, so look for it. Wait for it. Wait, wait, for, wait for when the president or the senator or something drags out a person, sometimes literally, like in a state of union speech, and points to a person and says, and says, this person lost their arms and legs, this person, and, and then step back, you'll be moved, and step back and say, okay, so how often does that happen? Mm -hmm. Is it a good policy or bad policy? Mm -hmm. Always be, be obsessed with the numbers, with the data, mm -hmm. because it's, it's a lot less romantic, but you know, it depends what you want. If you want to address your moral, the moral problems, like deciding whether to go to war, and get great feeling out of it, and great emotional passion, then rely on empathy. But if you want to be a good person, you've got to take the harder step of noticing when you're being exploited and, and seeking to combat it. I love it. I love it. Such, such rational, sane words. Uh, so the book's available today, um, and uh, it is smart right and that's what I like it's let's let's have real conversations about real things I'm so tired of the of people saying the same damn things in the health space over and over again people saying like just repeating things that mean so it's the case for rational compassion Paul Bloom uh, and uh, available today like I said um, I highly recommend and we're doing like a, um, a monthly book club over with my students in the Academy so with thousands of people that are reading books so I'll put it on the list and we'll read it together and have uh, an opportunity Excellent. to have more discussions um, you have a website that people uh, can know about find out more about you uh, just Google my name we'll get you there awesome, awesome. The, the, you'll go my name in the word Yale and you'll find your way there wonderful thank you so much thanks for your time I, I really enjoyed this and uh, I wish you the best of luck with the book and uh, you know we'll do our part to get the message out there I think it's a great conversation this was a delight. Thank you for inviting me here. Thank you. And so you guys, let me know what you think. Uh, I'm going to have this on Facebook. We'll get it on YouTube in the next week or so. And uh, let, let me know what you think. Read the book and let's have an intelligent conversation about it. I will see you next time.